Good morning, Fellowship family. I'm gonna invite you to stand as we celebrate the freedom that we have in Christ and the victory that we have through the resurrected Jesus. Amen. If you know it, let's sing it. Let's remember. Remember those walls. Remember those walls that we call sin and shame. They were like prisons that we could not escape. But he came and he died and he rose. Those walls are rubble now. Sing it out, remember. Remember those giants we called death and grave. They were like mountains that stood in our way. But he came. And he died, and he rose, those giants are dead now. We sing, this is our God, this is who he is, he loves us. This is our God, he saves, he saves us. He bore the cross, beat the grave, let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our That fear that took our breath away Faith so weak we could barely pray But he heard every word, every whisper Now those altars in the wilderness Tell the story of his He does. 
be thankful for that truth. He bore the cross, he beat the grave. He's a king, he's a God that loves us. Even now, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we can stand here okay, forgiven at our core, new at our core, amen? He became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Let's be still in this moment and let's behold him for all he is. Before there was light Walked across the pages of time You made every living thing Behold Him He who heard humanity's cry Left His throne to wake as a child He became like the
Your constant grace remains our cornerstone. Things that we thought were dead are breathing in life. Shine on darkest night For all that you've done We will pour out our love This will be our anthem
again, Jesus. Jesus, we Christ comes again. 
Christ comes again All sin and all sorrow Will come to an end In perfect have a seat. Is that a beautiful song written by our own Pat Anderson and Fellowship Worship? Hey, I want us to just sit in that moment right now. And I just want to give you a moment to commune with the Lord, just in the private of your heart to his. And let's spend a moment in prayer. And, and I'll give you the outline. And so I want us to spend some time praising God for who he is. And then I want us to spend some time thanking God for what he's done. And then let's just get real before him and confess our sins before a holy God. And then we'll lift up any requests that are on our heart. So in the quiet of your heart, would you join me in prayer? Let's bow our heads and you can finish these sentences first. Lord, I praise you because you are. Praise him for an attribute or a character trait that he's displaying in your life right now. Let's move to expressing gratefulness. Finish this sentence. Lord, I thank you because you have. Thank him for something that he's done for you or in you or around you lately. Now as you stand before a holy God, confess your sin. Admit to your wrongdoing. Finish the sentence, Lord, I confess that I have. now lift up any requests that you have for others or maybe something in your personal life. Finish the sentence, Lord, I ask that you would.
Well, Lord, this morning we acknowledge that you are alive and you hear and you answer prayer. So what a privilege it is to come before you in this moment of worship and commune with you. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask and we trust that you'll answer. Amen. Well, good morning, Fellowship Rogers. I am so glad that you guys have joined us today. It's going to be a great day if you're new to our church. Maybe you're here today for the, for the first time. You came last week to Easter and you thought, you know what? I'm going to give those guys another shot. We are glad that you are, are here and that you've joined us for our, our time of worship. Hey, we would love to get to know you. And so if you're new or you're back for the first time in a long time, if you would just come out into the foyer, we would love to um, meet you, get your name, get your information, and we'd love to minister to you. We'd love to minister to your children. If you have them, we would love to walk alongside you in life, and we can do that through a number of different ways. So connect with us. We would love to connect with you. Uh, I have a couple of opportunities to do just that, men. We have a retreat coming up. We're gonna go over to the Buffalo National River on May 5th and 6th. We would love for you to join us. It's going to be epic. There are going to be short hikes and long hikes. There's going to be cornhole and sitting. There's going to be, <laughs> there's going to be uh, incredible teaching and fellowship. And um, we're having prime rib dinner and there's gonna be all kinds of great things. So we'd love to have you. You can sign up online. Ladies, um, in just a few weeks on April 30th, there's going to be a discipleship roundtable across the hall in the family center. And so if you want to learn how to become a fully devoted follower of Christ, or if you want to get some tips on how to mentor others who maybe are just a step or two behind you in their faith, then join us at the 1030 service for that. No need to register, just uh, come on across. Hey, today we're going to start a new teaching series called Risen. Last week, we made a bold claim that Jesus is alive, that he's conquered the grave, and that he rules and reigns over sin and death. And so we have an alive Jesus, we have an empty tomb, and the scriptures don't stop the story there. After the resurrection, Jesus made numerous post-resurrection appearances on this earth. In fact, Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says that after his suffering, it's talking about the cross event there, that he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was what? Alive. The tomb is empty. The body is missing and Jesus is alive. And there is a bold declaration from heaven that he is ruling and he is reigning. And so we are going to look at six post-resurrection appearances of Jesus over the next few weeks. Some of those you might be familiar with out of the gospels. We're also going to include one from the book of Acts and we're going to include one from the book of Revelation. And, and here's our goal. It, over the next six weeks, we want to learn a little bit more about who Jesus is and what he is doing on this earth. In fact, I'd give us three simple goals. First, it's going to provide proof and evidence that over a period of 40 days, Jesus appeared to up to 500 people in multiple locations to different kinds of people. He ate with them. He walked with them. He lived life with them. And we're going to show that he is alive. He's not dead. He's not in the grave. He's not on the cross, but he is with us. And then secondly, we're gonna gain some insight. It's interesting, and we'll see it in the passage today, that resurrected Jesus is the same Jesus we're used to. 
He has bodily form. He, he eats. He communicates with us, but he's different. The supernatural, the divine attributes of Jesus emerge out of him. And so we're going to see what the glory of God looks like. We're going to get a glimpse of what is to come in resurrected Jesus as we look at these stories. And then lastly, wouldn't you be interested in what his final instructions were to us on earth? And in these resurrection appearances, that's what he did. He gave us the final commands. He gave us our marching orders. He gave us our mission. And so we'll pick that up as well. Today we're going to start the series. So you can open your Bibles to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24. And we've got a special guest with us today. Dr. Mark Yarbrough is here. And Mark is the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, which is dear to our hearts um, and, and Mark's a dear friend of fellowship. He married his high school sweetheart, Jennifer. He has four adult children. In fact, we talked this morning, two more college graduations. You're getting a raise, bro. You're getting a raise. Kick them off the cell phone plan, kick them off the insurance, and let's go on a trip. We'll go fishing. That's what we talked about. We're going to Alaska on Mark's race. Um, and uh, Mark uh, is the president. He's a, an outdoorsman. He is a Texan. Um, he preaches in boots, and he loves the scriptures. And so, hey, we're glad you're here. Come on up, bud. Thank you, brother. Well, good morning, fellowship. How are you today? You know, we're starting off a new series, and I get started off, which uh, I wasn't planning on this, so forgive me, everybody. But I was thinking about a time that I was preaching with uh, Howard Hendricks, a name that you might remember and um, I was going with Dr. Hendricks, um, and I was doing the first and the third session, and he was going to do two and four. And so it was starting off a brand new series that I was going to do with him. Everybody was there to hear him. They had no idea who I was. And we were at the Cove, which is the Billy Graham Training Center, and I'm sitting up on the front row, and they're giving an introduction. And uh, he leans over to me and says, don't look down, but guess who just walked in the room? Oh, Yeah. I looked in the back, Billy Graham had just walked in the room. Friends, I was going to have to preach in front of Billy Graham. Howard Hendricks leans over to me and he says, this is it. Don't screw it up. <laughs> so, here we are, starting a brand new series, Mark. This is it. Don't screw it up. Hey, it's good to be with you guys today. And um, what a passage that we have that is in front of us. And I got to thinking about journeys so back when I was 12 years old, my family, we went all Chevy Chase, Griswold family, and we loaded up the van, and we were going to take this journey from Dallas, Texas, where I'm from, all the way to Colorado, because my dad wanted to show me snow. We don't get to see that down south. And so he said, we're going to go to Colorado, and we're going to go on a skiing event, and I thought, this is fabulous. So let me kind of explain it to you. It was well before you could get your cell phone out and look at radars, right, and kind of check out the weather. Anybody remember those days where you just kind of had to get up and find out what it was going to be like for the day? You had no preparation for anything, so we loaded up the van, and we took off, and it was going to be great. We made our journey from Dallas to Amarillo, and everything was fine, but upon leaving Amarillo, we kind of looked ahead, and you kind of looking out on the horizon, and and the clouds looked a little ominous. That's the only way I can explain it. Little did we know that as we crossed Texline and moved into New Mexico on our way to Colorado, that we would be entertained by snowflakes. And the snowflakes 
started off small and then they got large. And before we know it, we had gone into what they reference as a whiteout megastorm. And it took over our lives. It started innocently enough, but it went from bad to worse. The beautiful snowflakes turned into our enemies. Cars stalled out as temperatures dropped to zero. You could see no road lines or highway shoulders whatsoever, and all drivers were at a loss. It was incredibly dangerous. And within a couple of hours, snowdrifts had formed four, five feet tall. Wiper blades were completely frozen, and the little motors that move those things began to crystallize. We had to stop every five minutes. It was incredibly threatening, not knowing where we were when you would stop the cars. There were no lines. There were no shoulders, and cars could appear out of nowhere. After the fifth stop, my dad's hands were frozen. And he said, I remember these words, Mark, at the next stop, get out of the passenger side, close the vehicle, check your footing to make sure that you're on solid ground. Trust me, you'll be okay. But we have to ice off the blades and get to safety immediately, and I need your help. When my dad, who is a rock, said, I need your help, I knew it was serious. As we pulled over, I was scrambling to find my gloves when my dad was already opening up his door. I can remember my mom to this day saying, Bob, be careful. Fear was in her voice. And in a sovereignly designed moment, at the precise time that my dad's car door closed, getting out of the driver's seat, a horn of an 18-wheeler blasted. And without notice, that truck brushed us, instantaneously clipping the outside driver rearview mirror. My mom and my sister and I all screamed. That moment froze in time. We knew that my dad had been struck and killed. We sat quietly for 30 seconds, which seemed like an eternity. I can still hear my sister's voice, oh, daddy. And my mom prayed, father, give us strength. We paused, and as I fumbled for the handle of the door, to face tragedy, the door flung open and my father stood there completely sound and said, well, are you coming? I need your help. <laughs> we had no way to respond. Was he real? Was he a figment of our imagination? Was this a dream? We knew that he had been hit. And as you can imagine, moments later, we wept. To this day, we cannot explain it. My dad never saw nor heard a truck. 
and he was shocked at the bent mirror frame and broken glass. Friends, it was a story of the grace of God and that's all I can tell you today. There's no other way to comprehend it, but I know this, I know this. In those frozen moments right after the tragedy and his appearance, we were disoriented and we were broken and we were frightened and we were confused. Likely, even as I described that story, you've probably been there, maybe not in the exact same way, but you know, moments after tragedy have a tendency to freeze us. We don't really know how to respond. That must have been what the disciples felt after the death, the burial, and even the reports of the resurrection of Jesus. The biblical text, friends, describes the disciples as bewildered and befuddled, puzzled, perplexed, and dejected. Even the disciples who had heard the reports from the women who had visited the tomb early on Sunday morning and had found it empty, even those disciples were confused. And here's what I know. Even followers of Jesus have a difficult time embracing the resurrection. Even followers of Jesus have a difficult time embracing the resurrection. Do you ever have those moments of doubt, believer? Can this be real? Did he really get up from the dead? I mean, have any of you seen that recently? Somebody get up from the dead? Come on. Let's just go ahead and talk about it. No wonder they're shocked. No wonder they're confused. So friends, let's step back in time and meet some disciples who simply struggled coming to grips with what happened to Jesus, his death and his burial and the breaking reports of his resurrection. And here's what I think. I think, friends, that we will find out as modern day disciples of Jesus that we still wrestle with the same realities. Let me phrase it this way. How should disciples respond to his resurrection? There you have it. How should we respond to his resurrection. And in our text today, we're gonna to find out something that we're not supposed to do and then something that we are supposed to do, okay? Something we're not supposed to do followed by something that we are supposed to do. And in Luke chapter 24, the first thing that we are not supposed to do is this. Number one, don't be a fool. You're like, whoa, Mark, that sounds real aggressive. Don't be a fool. Don't you love showing up to church and that's what somebody says to you? Hey, don't be a fool today. Well, friends, those aren't my words. Those are the words of the risen Christ. Get your Bibles, if you will, or your phone. Or we're gonna provide words for you on the screen. Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24. 
starting in at verse 13. The text says this. Now that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? Do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? Is that not a fascinating passage? Go ahead. Come on. Work with me. Yeah, that's a fascinating passage, friends. I mean, you're reading this story, and here it is. And there's a lot of things that we need to unpack here, okay? So let's just remind ourselves of some things as we walk through this text together. So this first move is what I'm referencing of something that we're not supposed to do. And Jesus himself said it. Don't be foolish. Don't be a fool. But this story starts off and it's in the middle of a context. Look back, if you will, again at verses 13 through 16. I love this passage because I, you could break this thing down into what I reference is the walk, the talk, and the stalk. How's that for a nice little rhyme for us on Sunday morning? The walk and the talk and the stock. Here's what we see. It starts off at verse 16. Now, that same day, friends, in the context, here's what's going on. It is Sunday. Last week, we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord. So it's the day that he got up from the dead. It's that day. These events had occurred that morning. It is now that afternoon. So when Luke steps us into this storyline, and he says, now that same day, two of them. You have to ask the question, who are them? It goes back to the context that comes right before. Just back up if you're looking in your Bible. In verse 9, it says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all of these things to the 11 and to all of the others. These are two people that are part of all the others. Does that make sense? They had been there. They'd heard all these reports. Verse 11 in the previous context says this. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. 
Luke wants us to see that these are two guys that were there. They were part of that crowd. The reports came back. They heard it and they thought, man, they're nuts. They're telling some kind of a crazy story and they kept talking amongst themselves and now they're just going home and they're all dejected. Now, these people, we don't specifically know. One of them is identified by name. His name is Cleopas, which is the male form of Cleopatras, okay? Now, there's a whole bunch of things. If you look it up in technical commentaries and people think that this was a, a relative of Jesus, maybe so. The other person's not identified by name. Was it this person's wife? Possibly. Bottom line, the text doesn't tell us. Luke wants us to know that there are two people that are walking and they're making a, a seven-mile journey home to Emmaus. We don't know where that is, by the way. But it was seven miles from Jerusalem. It's close enough that after these events, they're headed home, the text says. So they're walking. What do you do after a big event happens in your life? What do you do? Come on, talk to me. You talk about it. Anybody talk about baseball games and football games and basketball games and you went to an event, what people were wearing, and if somebody acts out or an event happens, what is it that you're discussing on the way home? You're talking about the chaos, the confusion, whatever took place. That's what these guys are doing. They're heading home. They didn't have their iPads playing. They, didn't, they weren't listening to stuff. They're just chatting it up going, oh my goodness, I love this story here. So they're doing what we humans do. It says they're headed home. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked, scripture says, and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Okay. Work with me. They're just chatting it up. And Jesus kind of all of a sudden strolls alongside. Now look, I use the word stalk simply because it rhymes with everything else, okay? I don't know if he was like waiting behind a bush. Now's our moment, you know. Let's jump out. Boo, here I am. Let's have a discussion, guys. I don't know that's what's going on, but it says that he just kind of comes along with them. And I, I love the description that the text says. In verse 16, it says, but they were kept from recognizing him. We don't fully know what that means, but they could not see that it was Jesus. Sometimes it's referenced because it is a passive word that is used there. Sometimes it's referenced as the divine passive. Is it something that God did, the Father? Is it something that Jesus himself prevented them from knowing who he was? Or is it simply because of their sorrow and their disbelief that they couldn't see Jesus? Luke wants us to know when he records this that they didn't know that it was him. It's fascinating as the text moves on, we're gonna find out that there are three questions that occur. So as Jesus shows up, verse 17, he asks them, notice this, there's gonna be three questions in a row here. What are you discussing together as you walk along? The text gives us a description that they paused they stood still in a downcast face, and one of them named Cleopas, and by the way, it seems that Luke wants us to know who this is, even though we don't know his background. He was known by the group. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? Now look, there's a little sarcasm that's going on here. 
I mean, there's irony in this text. Jesus is the one. Obviously, who knows all the details of the story? Come on. It's Jesus, right? And he says, man, dude, Yarbrough paraphrase here. It's like, dude, were you like born in a barn? You know, I guess you can't actually ask that to Jesus though, can you? So it's like, dude, have you been living under a rock? I mean, it's like, where have you been? Come on, man. I mean, I love the irony of this text. And Jesus, the master teacher, look at the text. After he says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? Do not know these things that have happened these days? And Jesus like, what things? I mean, you know, it had to be. He's like, yeah, I know the details that you don't know, but go ahead, let's play this game. What things? Look at the text about Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and all our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. There's a series of questions that you saw those Q1, Q2, Q3. What are you guys talking about? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, we thought he was a prophet. Haven't you heard about it? He says, what things? I mean, it's a series of Q&A that's going back and forth. It's what people do when you're making a journey and you're talking with one another. I always say there used to be this thing that we did before cell phones, we would actually communicate. We would talk and we would have dialogue and make eye contact and things like that. We need to go back to that era. It's really helpful. And here they are. They're making a journey together and they're talking. And when you move into these next few verses, just orient ourselves because it's a discussion of his death that they are dazed, if you can phrase it that way, in disbelief. So look at what happens by the time we start moving into verse 20. It says, the chief priests in their answer, and all the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. They're telling the story from their vantage point, right? Verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. By the way, when you hear that phrase, we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel, they opened up by saying that he was a prophet, and by the way, that was one of the descriptions in Judaism that was going to identify who this Messiah was. So that's not a bad phrase. We know exactly who they're talking about when they use this phrase of saying he was one who was going to redeem Israel. Look at that. They're identifying him specifically as the Messiah. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women, they amazed us. They're telling the story. They shocked us. They came back telling us the story that they did not find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And then some of our companions, they went to the tomb, corroborated by the other gospels, and found it just as the women had said. But him, they did not see. And I love this. Then all of a sudden, Jesus begins to teach. In his opening words, friends, he's like, guys, don't be a fool. Literally in the text, right? It's don't be foolish. But to them specifically, don't, don't be a fool. Look at it again, they're in the text. He said to them, verse 25, how foolish you are 
and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? Friends, he's saying, don't be a fool and doubt the witness of the resurrection. His first response about don't be foolish, back up in that text. Look at verse 24. They had just described some of their companions that ran to the tomb and they found out that he was not there, but they didn't see him. And because they didn't see him, they doubted. Hey, friends, there's nothing wrong with doubt in the faith. We all have it, don't we? I was about to say this isn't being recorded, but it probably is. You ever have doubt in your walk of faith? Anybody in this room? Or are you just a whole lot more holy than I am? Friends, we're talking about something that is staggering. We believe that Jesus Christ got up from the dead. They heard the reports, and Jesus says, hey, hey, don't be foolish. Trust these witnesses. They're corroborated. You can talk to them. Word is breaking, and he's trying to gain their confusion and to channel it and say, hey, friends, don't be a fool. Believe what you have heard. Don't be a fool and doubt the witness of the resurrection. I love the way that Kent Hughes phrases it. He says this, a grand truth that emerges from this story, as it does in none other of the Gospels, is that the disciples did not invent the resurrection story. At first, they neither understood it or believed it. None of the Gospels tell us how Jesus was resurrected because none of the Gospel authors saw it. How did they resist creatively imagining such a spellbinding story for the church? They resisted because they were not myth-makers, but witnesses. Or I can phrase it like Alexander McLaren's word. He said this, the evidential value of the disciples' slowness to believe cannot be overrated. I love that. Friends, don't be a fool. We have witnesses. Well, I think he does something else in the text here. He says, don't be a fool and miss the teachings of Scripture. Sin demands payment. Back in the text, look exactly what Jesus says here as he is saying, hey guys, don't be a fool. You're slow of heart to believe, listen to this, all that the prophets had spoken. Verse 26, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Leon Morris phrases it this way, he says the hope of the pair had been that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had seen him as the promised deliverer. Redemption in the ancient world signified deliverance on payment of a price. And until Calvary, no one could know the extent of the cost. Friends, you know what kind of deliverer they were looking for? They were looking for a deliverer that was going to crack open a can of whoop on Rome. You with me on that? They were looking ahead to the glory. And Jesus said there was a price that had to be paid 
before that could arrive. And as I reference frequently, lap number one of the Messiah, friends, was to come and give his life as a ransom for many. And they were looking ahead when Jesus was saying, look at what I came to do now. I love that. Jesus says, don't be a fool. Don't doubt the testimonies and don't ever forget why he came in lap number one and that was to pay the price for sin. So what is it that we're not supposed to do when we have it right in front of us? Don't be a fool. That's what we're not supposed to do, friends, but there's something that we are supposed to do. And here's what it is. Number two, believe the book. Look at what he says here. So after Jesus says these things, verse 27 says this, in beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And friends, because what I do at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, I still teach in the Bible Exposition Department. And I've had the privilege over my life, I've been preaching and teaching since I was 16. And I've been engaging scriptures and having classes. And man, have I, over the course of my life, had some professors that have poured into me when I was a student and have just taken scripture and unloaded it. I've had some of those classes where, I mean, they backed up the truck and they just dumped it. And I was like, ah, I can't handle anymore. Stop it, please. I'd trade every class at Dallas Seminary and every class I've ever had to be at this moment in time when Jesus unpacked the word and said, it's all pointing to me. Friends, this is a beautiful moment in the text and this is not a new theme for Jesus. In John chapter five, where he had previously talked about this on many, many occasions, he said this, you search the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. You refuse to come to me to receive eternal life. Look, this text does not Give us the details of what Jesus covered. But friends, from beginning to end, he said, friends, you gotta believe the book. You gotta trust the text. Now, I can't promise this to you, but surely when Jesus walked through the Bible for them, surely he went all the way back to Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And he said that that moment when the transgression first occurred and Jesus said, one from the line of woman will come and crush your head, serpent. Surely he said, it's about me. Surely in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, the promise made to Abraham of a people, a land, and a worldwide blessing. Surely he talked to them about that and said, that's about me. Surely in Genesis chapter 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. Remember that moment? Surely he said, that's about the Messiah me. Surely in Exodus chapter 12, the story of the Passover, where upon leaving Egypt, they were saved by the blood of the lamb. Surely he was saying, that's about Jesus. It's about me. 
Surely in Leviticus chapter one, the burnt offering where the animal was sacrificed because the individual that had sin put that sin upon the sacrifice itself. Surely Jesus was saying, that is about me. Surely in Numbers chapter 11, when there was manna provided, he said, that's about me. In Numbers chapter 21, when the bronze serpent had been lifted up, Jesus was saying, that's talking about me. Surely in Deuteronomy chapter 17, where the true king is talked about, he said, that's about me. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promises to David, surely he said, that's about me. Surely he opened up the Psalms and he went to Psalm 22 and he went to Psalm 110 and said, that's about me. Surely he went to the book of Daniel and said, he looked ahead and saw one that was like the son of man. Surely he said, that's about me. I don't know how long this lesson went on, but it was the world's greatest tutoring session. I can promise you that. The text says in verse 27, in beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Hey, friends, believe the book. Way after this fact, the apostles, when they really had their eyes opened, I want you to think about this. This became their defense. You remember when Philip had the engagement with the Ethiopian eunuch? Anybody remember that story? He's reading along, and the text says this in Acts chapter 8. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture, Isaiah 53, and told them the good news about Jesus. That means Isaiah was already preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. How about this? In Acts chapter 10, remember when Peter's having the engagement at the house of Cornelius? The text says this in chapter 10, verse 42. He, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. How about the apostle Paul? Later, when he was standing in front of King Gerippa, Paul says this, but I have had God's help to this very day and I stand here to testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Do you hear the consistency? The claim of Scripture is to trust the book. Friends, the story doesn't end there after Jesus says this. Look at verses 28 through 31 again. It says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going to go on farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. This is fascinating. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. I love that. Post-resurrection, do you ever notice some of the strange things that Jesus does? He's there and that he's not. I mean, I can only imagine these discussions with the disciples, and we're gonna see those in the weeks ahead when you're walking through all of these post-resurrection appearances. I have a feeling that they had many holy circle moments, you know? 
you know, and they're all kind of there together, and they're like looking at one another going, is he here? Is he still here? You know, I, I don't know, but we see him move differently. It's fascinating, isn't it? Now, look, I don't know how it was that they recognized. I don't know that was God's direct removal from them. There is an emphasis in the text. I don't know if we can go too far with this, but notice the language. He gave thanks, they took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. I don't know, did they see his hands? I don't know what the storyline is here, friends, but when they recognized him, I have a suspicion he kind of looked at him and winked. <laughs> like, yeah, you got it. I'm back. And then he was gone. Hey, friends, I love the way this text moves because it's not over, this story. He wants our help. Look at verse 32. After their eyes were opened, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled there and saying, it's true. The Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. You wanna know what he asks of those whose eyes are open? Oh yeah, it's pretty simple, friends. He wants us to tell our story. Tell our story the day our eyes were opened. I ask you the question, how long has it been since you've told your story to your kids to your grandkids, to your neighbors. The day your eyes were opened, tell your story often with passion, with excitement, with a belief that eternity is on its way. Friends, to this day, my dad is 81, and we tell his miraculous story. Wonk, wonk, smack. What 18-wheeler are you talking about? We tell that story all the time, and we laugh and cry. But that story, my friends, pales in insignificance compared to the story that my dad tells the day he met Jesus Christ. You see, friends, don't doubt. Embrace the testimonies of the faith. Embrace the eyewitnesses. Don't be a fool and discard that. Trust the text revisit the promises of old and we will gain new clarity as we live even today. I was watching a uh, video. I don't know if you do like dopey things with your time like I do every once in a while on these phones that will eat your clock. Do you ever find yourself looking at stupid videos? Anybody in this room? Look at, look at all of us just admitting it right here. Yeah, I was like scrolling through some videos. I don't even know why I was doing it or how I got there, but I was. And I came across this little video, which was not stupid. It may have been one of the most precious things I've ever seen in my life. And it was of a little girl who had very poor eyesight. And for the first time, she was given glasses. And she could see. I want you to watch it, okay? 
Just look at her. She is just the cutest thing you have ever seen. Watch this video. Okay, she doesn't want them. She's gonna fight them off. Who needs glasses anyway? And her mom gets them on. Watch this. Hold on, she's not done yet. They gotta clean the glasses and she's gonna like fight them off now to say, no, I've got a new set of glasses here and they're mine, right? She wants them. She's gonna cherish them. Watch this. I love this little look on her face. She's just like, oh, with excitement. Look, watch, watch her, watch her. She's gonna pat your face and she's like, oh, oh, I've got these glasses, they're mine. set of glasses that we've been given. It'll give us great clarity for now as we prepare for the life to come. Lord, thank you. We so identify with these disciples. Lord, forgive us at times in our lives where we doubt, we know we can't stay there. We have the witnesses, the testimonies of individuals that have seen the Savior and you have opened our eyes. Help us to go back to your word to see this is what was proclaimed long ago. May we trust your text, your word, so that we have greater clarity in how opportune it is for us, Lord, when we get in your word, that everything seems to make sense. And when we stop and fail to do that and we listen to the voices of the world, that we find ourselves becoming confused and our sight can grow dumb. Help us, Lord, to not play the role of the fool, but to remain anchored in your word. Help us to do that today and this week and the weeks to follow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's thank Dr. Yarbrough for being here today. The ministry of Dallas Theological Seminary affects us every week. So if you appreciate what's being taught here and at our campus in Fayetteville and Bentonville, we have a great debt to the seminary. And so thanks for being with us today. Hey, if you need prayer today, our prayer room is open and we'd love to pray for you for anything little or big that's going on in your life. Hey, there are discussion guides available on the front page of our website, fellowshiprogers.org. Um, and you can study this, this passage in your community group this week or in your family time or in your personal devotional time. We love you, fellowship. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.